Once again, Paul, being under house arrest, he didn't uh, sign up for that. You know, it's like the military, they sign up for a term, three or four years, and they can re-enlist or they can sign off. Um, we can, we can uh, live our lives, you know, with under contracts or whatever the case may be. But Paul, because he was a follower of Christ, he was very vocal about his faith. He ended up under house arrest in Rome. Not something that we all look forward to, but he kept his joy knowing that Jesus was with him. We sang about that earlier, talked about it earlier during the, the singing. And um, that's really how Paul was able to rejoice even in the midst of something like that. Psalm 16.8, I know the Lord is always with me. I read this a couple days ago, and um, man, it, I think it's something that we could all circle in our Bibles and maybe stick in our refrigerators. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. Now, you may not feel it, and that's okay, because we can't live by feelings, but it's a promise. The Lord is right beside us. Paul recognized that. That's why he had the right perspective on how to live his life and challenged the people at this young church to do the very same thing. So he was obsessed about talking about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, if you hung around Paul for any amount of time, you'd find out, just like this married couple that came to uh, Liz's radio station, uh, even though they were successful, they seemed to always land on the topic of Jesus. That's where Paul was. And Paul, being he, if going back into his personal history, he had been a very religious man. And that came up empty for him. And so he's excited about having that personal relationship with Christ. The joy of a relationship, not rules and regulations. So Paul had enough morality you know, to keep him out of trouble back in the day. But he didn't have righteousness to get him into heaven. See, religion gives you a lot of morality but it gives you no righteousness. That all comes from Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. So, he had to lose his religion to find salvation. And uh, here's the cool thing. God takes us as we are. You know, there's some false teaching out there that we have to clean up our act before we come to Jesus, and that doesn't work out well, does it? No, it doesn't. We come as we are, just as I am. I come, and I let Jesus change me, because he's the only one that can. And that's what Paul had learned. But here's the thing. Jesus loves you as you are, but he's not going to leave you that way. He wants you to become more like him. And um, that's where we go back to our joy is going to be tested. Yeah, that's life. And it's cool to know when your joy is tested and you come through it and you keep your joy, man, it's... You give thanks to the Lord for that. Max Lucado put it this way, God's love never ceases, never. Though we resist him, ignore him, reject him, despise him, disobey him, he will not change. Our evil cannot diminish his love. Man, Liz Curtis Higgs would say amen to that, right? 
All of us this morning can do the very same thing. Our goodness cannot increase it. Our faith does not earn any more it any more than our stupidity jeopardizes it. God doesn't love us less if we fail or more if we succeed. God's love never ceases. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, man, um, rest in the love of God. Let's do a quick review from last Sunday. Modeling joy number one, verse one, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it as a safeguard to safeguard your faith. And once again, we want to be reminded that true joy is not dependent on our circumstances. You know, it doesn't come from the world. Really authentic joy comes from having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul landed, of course. And that's why he could write this. And we see subpoint one, joy pursued, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters. Paul is writing to the church. It's a clear reference to the believers back at Philippi. They had been brought into the family of God. And so this supernatural joy that Paul experienced is saying you can experience it too. In fact, you have experienced it, and you need to continue to experience it in whatever happens. That word rejoice, to rejoice, be glad, be joyful, be full of joy. Literally, it means in the Greek, go on constantly rejoicing or be continually rejoicing. And we could say, how's that working out for each of us today? Huh? Yeah. As we look at our lives, is that joy present? Is it evident? Do people recognize that joy in us? It's a choice. It's a choice that each of us have to make. I choose to be joyful because Christ is living inside of me. Number two, joy dispersed. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Paul's writing in a very difficult time in his life, of course. And um, he had mentioned this back in chapter 2, verse 14. That whatever happens, you need to rejoice. And verse 14 says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Because Paul recognized when you're complaining about life, your circumstances, when you're arguing with somebody, uh, your joy kind of gets sucked out of you, right? It goes on vacation. You lose it. And Paul says, don't get caught up in that. And it seems like in our culture today, people just love to argue, don't they? Huh? They don't? <laughs> we hit this last Sunday, man. People are wired. I mean, they're kind of like at their breaking point in our culture today. And that's where, as followers of Christ, we can't allow that to push, into, push us into a corner where that violin string is about to snap. That's where keeping our balance with God's joy uh, keeps life in perspective. Paul is saying, don't complain and don't argue. And so today, let's make a commitment. Let's not get caught up in arguing or complaining because it will steal your joy. So God never commands us to do something that he will not make possible. Paul's writing this, and, and once again in the Greek, it's a command. There's no PSs behind it. 
It's a command. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. We should stop and think about that. God will pour his grace into us to keep that joy right where it needs to be. Why do we need to pursue a life of joy? Because we want to become more like Christ. And what's that look like? Jesus said in John 15, 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So to be like Christ, our joy needs to overflow. Indeed. Where do we get this joy? Paul says it's in the Lord. It all comes from in the Lord. That's the source. God is love. Joy is distributed by Christ and that love, that joy that we can have through it all, it all comes from in the Lord. It's a gift. Number three, joy protected. Paul says, I do it to safeguard your faith. What does that mean? It means that your faith is always under a test. There's always something in life or a person or people that are going to try and steal your joy. Sometimes people are irritated because you're happy. You're full of joy. They want you to be depressed and discouraged like they are, and so they will torment you, if they can, for you to lose it. So Paul says, I never get tired of telling you these things because he's fully aware that his joy has been tested. And he's heard of what's going on in Philippi as well. Their faith, their joy is being tested. And he's saying, I want, to do, I want to keep saying this over and over because it will safeguard your faith. Safeguard, it means protecting. Protecting against falling, suffering great injury. Paul is saying, rejoicing in the Lord, it's that safeguard that will protect you from life where life will just beat you up. Where it seems like life isn't fair. It's like you want to get back at somebody or something to get even. That will steal your joy. Paul is saying, man, the, the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, it will be that safeguard so that you don't lose your joy. And again, last week we hit too many people are living by their feelings, right? You hurt my feelings. And so people walk away. Listen, we can go back to kindergarten, you know, where somebody took my block in kindergarten. I, I could have got ticked off and carried that with me for the rest of my life. It all started in kindergarten. <laughs> you have to let it go, man. You have to realize, yes, life is not fair. Uh, yes, things are going to happen to me personally that maybe they don't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I'm going to let it go because we're living in a broken world. Because we're living in a broken world, bad things happen to good people all the time. And once we realize that, we can say, it's okay. You can hurt my feelings. You can step on my heart. It's all right. I'm not talking about being a, you know, manipulated to it, but when you're in an abusive situation, that's not what I'm talking about. But people will hurt you. People will walk away from you. They will step on you. 
And it's important that we realize that Christ is in me. When they step on me, they're stepping on Christ. So I'm going to be okay. I'll survive. And so that's the same attitude that Paul had, you know, that he would not be offended. So uh, Philippians 1.17, uh, these teachers of God's word, their motives were wrong. They were trying to hurt Paul. And in verse 18, he says, but that doesn't matter whether the motives are false or genuine. The message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. You see, Paul had come to that point in his personal journey with Christ to say, yes, people have taken advantage of me. People, even in the Christian faith, have tried to discourage me. But I'm okay with that because as long as the gospel is being proclaimed, it's okay because it doesn't matter. Christ is being elevated. You could hurt me, it's okay. I'm going to survive. And that's where we need to land, friend. If we're going to live a life and cross the finish line with our faith in a very strong way, we've got to live our lives where things will not impact us, where our feelings are hurt, and we walk away, and we give up. There are cemeteries all across churches in America today where people have been hurt and they leave the church and they become bitter and angry. Man, it's a mess. Paul is saying, don't let that happen. So, before we move on, are you carrying an offense this morning? Has somebody recently hurt your feelings and you're debating on how you're going to respond, how you're going to get back at them? I'm going to walk out on them, whatever the case may be. Are you carrying an offense right now? Paul is saying, let it go. It doesn't matter. You want the kingdom of God to go forward. It's not about you. It's about Jesus living in you. So strong Christians are strong because they enjoy the Lord. You wonder why people finish strong? It's because they learn to let things go and not get offended. Number two. Mad dogs attack joy. It's another one. It's another one. Joy needs to be protected. Mad dogs attack joy. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Paul cha- uh, transitions here to the joy killers, and he's referring to a group of Jewish believers who opposed Paul's ministry. It seemed no matter where Paul landed in the world, these guys shadowed him, and they were out to destroy his ministry. Not only destroy his ministry, but the lives that had been pacted by the good news of Jesus Christ, they would start slipping in some false teaching and deceive those new believers. So they would change their minds and think, yeah, the faith in Christ is not enough. i got to do something else. So Paul comes right out of the gate here saying, watch out. It's a shot in the air with a flare, man. He's warning against false teachers, these Judaizers that he's referring to. These false teachers would mix the law from the Old Testament with grace, the grace of Jesus in the New Testament. And this is where Paul really got upset about it. 
There were people mixing the grace of Jesus with the law of the Old Testament. They would teach that in order to be right with God, you had to go back to the Old Testament, follow those laws, along with recognizing that your sins were forgiven by the grace of God. We see Peter in Acts 10 goes to the house of Cornelius. He says, uh, You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or associate with you, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of any one as impure or unclean. Verse 34, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. So what's happening here is the Jews felt exclusive. The Gentiles were the bad people, and the Jews were the special people in the eyes of God. And Peter says, no, 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 no. God showed me that the Gentiles are free to hear the good news as well. And then you go to Acts 11. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized them. See, it's not enough. You can't do that. You entered the home of the Gentiles and even ate with them. And so the Judaizers were so critical of Paul, they were trying to micromanage him. Everything he did, everything he taught, man, they would undermine it. So Paul warns the church at Philippi, come on, watch out for these false teachers. You've got to be discerning. You've got to be spiritually alert, not to accept the traps that they are teaching. Now notice there's three points that Paul talks about here. In this verse, he says, watch out for the dogs, number one. Two, those people who do evil. Three, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. So number one, he is saying that the legalists are scavengers. They're they're dogs. Watch out for those dogs. Now, I know dogs, if we took a poll today, uh, how many of you have dogs as pets? I mean, it's probably a majority out there, right? Yeah. I, I was thinking when I was growing up as a little dude, we had a full-size collie, you know, and I was smaller than the collie. And we had a basement, which means there were stairs, and, and when this collie would wag his tail, he'd knock me down the stairs. And so we got rid of him. <laughs> it wasn't my decision. My parents said, this dog is too big for this house. And so they gave it to my, my dad's brother-in-law, who had some property that uh, Lassie could run free. And then uh, when I was in middle school, we got my uncle had a dog, and he didn't like it. It was a miniature collie. But the dog barked, and he was, he was a mad dog. If you have a mad dog, he was mad. Uh, he barked all the time. And in our yard, he would just run up and down the fence line, you know, and barking. It's like, this dog's loopy, man, you know? And, and so that, that's my experience of dogs. And then, and then um, so we got rid of that dog too. And we don't have a dog today either. But I always liked dogs. And when I was on staff at a church down in Chicago, there was a, uh, a, a baby shower for a couple from church. They did not show up. So another guy from church and I were uh, told to go ring their doorbell and tell them, hey, everybody's here about, you know, your, this is your baby shower, you know. 
And there was, they had a fenced front yard along with two German shepherds. And so my buddy says, you climb the fence, I'll distract them over here. I'll walk over to the side fence, you climb the fence and run to the front door, which I did. I was very obedient. So I get about two-thirds there, and one of the German shepherds just latched onto my calf, you know. And, um, well, you know, you've been bit by dogs before, too, so. But it seemed like for years, man, I, I never was afraid of dogs, but when I'd go by a dog, they always seemed to know there was a German shepherd that bit you there, and we're going to check out your calf, you know. It just seemed like they just went to my calf all the time, like, Man, what's wrong with these dogs? Anyway, we have dogs that are pets, but in the Middle East and this culture, people never had dogs as pets. They were scavengers, man. They, they roamed the streets in packs. They, were, they would go to the garbage dumps. They would, when you had your garbage can in your backyard, they'd knock it over and eat what was in there. And the Jews looked at dogs they said, the Gentiles are dogs, man. They're scavengers. Paul turns the table on the Jews here. Notice, he says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. So Paul is saying, you Judaizers that are putting all these laws and demands on God's people, you're dogs, man. You're scavengers. You're going after the, the good lambs that are following after Jesus Christ. Next, Paul calls out those people who do evil. Paul's saying that rather than doing the works of the law, they were literally doing evil. You see, in their eyes, following the law was good. Paul's saying that was evil because they were adding to the gospel. Those people who do evil, it means evil workers. That word evil means corrupt, destructive, depraved, wicked, deceitful. These men, these Judaizers were telling people, you've got to be saved by faith plus by good works, by following the law. So the evil that Paul's talking about here, it was sucking the joy out of followers of Christ. Eugene Peterson wrote, we can't save ourselves by pulling on our bootstraps, even when the bootstraps are made of the finest religious leather. That's true. Can't do it. Third, Paul calls them those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Those, that word mutilator is the same word used in 1 Kings 18.28 when Elijah the prophet was dealing with the prophets of Baal. It says, so they shouted louder following their normal custom. These are the prophets of Baal. They cut themselves. That's where they, that word mutilator comes from. They cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. That's the imagery that Paul is using here. So the religious rite of male circumcision that these Judaizers were talking about was taught in the Old Testament. And it was a sign of God's covenant with the nation of Israel going all the way back to Genesis 17. And when Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again, he negated that, old, that law, that requirement. 
In Colossians 2, it says, So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. The cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Paul was saying, when Jesus went to the cross and he nailed our sins, man, it was nailed to the cross. And in the Greek that, the original means when you look at that parchment that would have been nailed on that cross, it was as if that there was nothing ever written on it because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Our sins were forgiven. That's where he says the can- he canceled the record of charges against us, all of our sins, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. When we put our faith in Christ, he forgives us. And when God looks at us, it's as if we never sinned. It's the righteousness of Christ. And Paul was really upset because these Judaizers were stealing the joy of followers of Christ, putting them back into the old covenant. Do you realize there's false teachers around today as well? They haven't gone away. Yeah, they're still here. They go by different names. They... It's always, you know, you put your faith in Christ plus. You have to add to it. Because what Jesus did on the cross is never enough in their eyes. Listen, when you put your faith in Christ, good works never save you. But here's the thing. When you put your faith in Christ, you want to do good works. You do. That's the motivation. Those good works are not going to save you. You're already saved. Those good works aren't going to make God love you more. Because he loves you more than he ever will in the future. He loves you to the max. You do those good works out of gratitude to what Jesus did in your life. Yeah, it's an overflow. There's a bumper sticker that I saw in Madison. It said, religion converted me to atheism. I'll tell you how sad is that, huh? You see, the church I grew up in, uh, really, it, it, what, they, they weren't Judaizers, but they, they always implied that, you know, this was a sin and that was a sin and this was a sin and that was a sin. And when people would ask, you know, why can't I do that? Well, it's because I said so. There was never any dialogue on why and what. And so my two sisters, who were they're older than me, their generation in the church, once those young people left the church, they left the faith. Because religion will turn you into an atheist. It will. Because it's not fun. It really isn't fun being religious. And so when we can come to that point and realize how much God loves us, and we receive his forgiveness for our sins. And then that begins that love relationship. I'll tell you what, man, that is what keeps the fires going. 
you know, that relationship with Jesus. It's not rules and regulations. It's a relationship. Because I know God loves me so much, I don't want to do anything to hurt him or his kingdom. Because I'm representing him. And I've told you this before. I remember the times where I hurt my wife, and I, I remember seeing the pain in her eyes. You could see it. And I came to a point in, in our marriage where I said, I don't want to do anything to hurt my wife. I don't want to see that pain in her eyes. Why is that? It's because I love her. I loved her when I married her, but I tell you what, I sure love her a lot more now than I did. My love has matured over time. It's more meaningful. There's more depth. Likewise, in my relationship with Christ, I love Jesus when I put my faith in him, but I tell you what, it has grown over time. And when I realize how much he loves me and he keeps pouring his love into me, it never ends. That's the motivation where I don't want to do anything to hurt him because I love him. See? It's liberating. And so at Life Church, man, we don't want to put demands on you, rules and regulations. It should be an overflow. Your gratitude, our gratitude for the Lord, for his forgiveness, his grace. His hand on our lives, guiding and directing us. And we see in Romans 3.20, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, for the law simply shows us how sinful we are. There it is. It's the law. That exposes sin in our lives, but it doesn't save us. So, watch out for those dirty dogs. This morning, just as um, Liz Curtis Higgs put her faith in Christ on that Sunday morning when the choir was singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So it goes to what Paul writes about safeguarding our faith, no turning back. You see, you may be experiencing something right now in your life, a crisis, a broken relationship, whatever the case, where you're flirting with the idea of walking away from Christ, no turning back. Paul says, well, you need to safeguard your faith, friend. Those Christians in Afghanistan... They're not considering turning away from Christ. They're grateful for what Jesus did for them. And they realize that their home is in heaven. It's not in Afghanistan. And friend, we all need to come to that place in our lives where we settle it. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. We see this evident in Paul's life, don't we? No turning back. You and I need to land there to pursue that life of joy in our relationship with Christ. I'm not going to turn back. I'm going to finish strong. No matter what the world throws at me, I purpose to finish strong for him. How about you? Father, we thank you this morning.
for your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross to pay for our sin debt. Why? Because you loved us and you didn't want us to be away from you for all of eternity. So you solved that problem by going to the cross and paying for our sins. And Lord, this morning I pray for each one of us, if we're getting caught up in in rules and regulations, I'm going to try and prove my love to God and make God love me more by doing this or whatever the case may be. Lord, help us to rest in the fact that you paid it all. You paid that price. You went to the cross. You paid our sin debt in full. There's nothing we can ever do to try and improve on that. And Lord, we realize there are people out there today that tell us we've got to do this, this, and this. Maybe even that little voice in the back of our heads that are, that's trying to tell us we're not good enough for God to love us. We have to become good before God will love us. Lord, those are all lies. Those are all, that's all evil. And so this morning we come to you as we are, trusting you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. We know it's you living in us that gives us the power and the desire to do what pleases you. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in you and love you as you have loved us. And just like that couple, Lord, who was willing to tell Liz about Jesus, about the good news, help us to be proactive in doing that as well, Lord. This is a world that needs to hear about you, some good news. So in Jesus' name, we thank you for your hand on each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.